Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. I'm Melissa Stutter, and I'm your host for tonight's episode of Teferit Talk, the Blog Talk Radio Show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community at the Teferit website. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal and enjoy beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is fabulous poet, essayist, and creative writing professor Shard Denord. Denord's poetry collections include A Sleep in the Fire, Sharp Golden Thorn, Night Mowing, and The Double Truth, as well as a collaborative project, Speaking in Turn. Denord was the co-founder and director of the Spirit and Letter Workshop in Pascua, Mexico, and the founder and director of the New England College MFA program in poetry. He currently teaches English and creative writing at Providence College, and in addition to teaching writing, Denord has also taught comparative religions and philosophy and holds a Master of Divinity from Yale. As well, Denord has conducted celebrated interviews with senior American poets. Many of these interviews are collected in the book Sad Friends, Drowned Lovers, Stapled Songs, which also includes essays. Of the double truth, Peter Campion says, very few contemporary poets render as uniquely as Shard Denord does the sheer wonder of being. Our world shines up from his lines and sentences with all its original splendor and strangeness. In Denord's spectacular gaze, old binaries of reality and dream, bitterness and love, joke and revelation, fuse into a beautiful whole. Denord is a visionary, and The Double Truth is a vital book. Hi, Tard. How are you doing tonight? Hello, Melissa. Thank you very much for having me on the show here. Oh, it's wonderful to be able to speak with you, and uh, I'm excited to interview another interviewer, too. That's a special honor, so thank you. Well, you're more than welcome, and you're wonderful at that as well. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I think I'll go ahead and start off with a question about interviewing. Um, I read the 2012 interview with Poetry International, and um, when you were asked about the difference between interviewing senior poets and younger poets, you mentioned that the senior poets did not attend MFA programs, with the exception of Robert Bly, who later regretted it, which I thought was a funny mention. <laughs> and you said <laughs> that the senior poets were simply candid, concise, and engaging, speaking out of their poetry rather than about it, whereas the younger poets were more drawn to theory and explaining their poetry. And you also talked about the practicable link between writing and living. And I just think these are such important observations, and I would love it if you could tell us more about what you mean by speaking out of the poetry and if you could elaborate on the practicable link between writing and living. 
Well, that, that's that's a, that's a great question. I I I found them enormously humbling and humbled at uh, at, at the same time uh, by poetry. In fact, Galway Cannell um, <clears throat> said that uh, he was very reluctant to even call himself a poet. It's too wonderful a thing, he said, to become, to be a poet and, uh, to, uh, and to call oneself a poet at the same time. Um, yeah. Ruth Stone was also uh, remarkably humble about writing and um, her life as a poet. She, she, she swore that she didn't write her own poems, that, she, that it was the muse that um, wrote the poems and she could hear them coming across the universe, universe like, a, uh, like a freight train and all she had to do was run inside the house or uh, wherever she was and, and write them down. Um, so th- th- uh, there was this really uh, kind of wonderful sort of spontaneous and um, lively attitude um, that they all had about about writing um, and, and living at the same time. You know, Ruth Stone was raising three daughters uh, at the same time she was trying to create a career as a poet. Um, uh, Lucille Clifton, um, pretty much the same thing. Um, um, so there, there wasn't, except maybe in the case of a few, this sense of of self-conscious professionalism about their work they just they were they were very aware of being poets and often very competitive with each other but not um just uh not overly self-conscious about, about it they were just as concerned about living their lives as they were about writing wow <laughs> that is humbling <laughs> um i wanted to actually ask you a little bit about ruth stone i know that you've done a lot of work with her um you're working with her estate right now correct right i'm i'm one of the executors of her estate um with um two of her granddaughters uh nora swan and bianca stone who's also a poet Mm -hmm. well i loved in your resistance and independence and contemporary american poetry essay in the courtland review how yeah. you explore that conundrum about how Ruth Stone is an atheist and in her poem it bridges the spiritual and scientific in relation to death as an example of Coleridge's fugitive causes. And I wanted to see if you could explain what the fugitive causes are for anyone who doesn't know and also elaborate on how the poem defies the current state of Poe biz. Um, and I like how you describe it as continuing to homogenize, commodify, institutionalize, professionalize, dehistoricize, and theorize poetry <laughs> I, into a literary industry of low expectations. <laughs> oh, dear. I do. I sound, I sound a little cranky there. I, um, but that's just, that's just what sort of happened in, in, this, in, the, in this essay. Um, um, well, it, um, the... the the idea of a fugitive of causes, which is which was really an idea of, of Coleridge's, um, um, this this r- romantic notion. Um, I'm just trying to find the the spot exactly in the essay where I where I mention that. Um, um, it's uh, you know it's it's very close to what Lorca also said about Duende. Um, I, I say here in this essay, if I could just read just a little bit of, of it, that Coleridge called these raw, oniric subjects 
uh, oneric meaning dreamlike, fugitive causes a phrase inspired by his upper school teacher, James Boyer, who instilled in the younger the young poet, the muse's mercurial nature. Coleridge learned from Boyer that, quote, that poetry, even that of the loftiest and seemingly that of the wildest odes, had a logic of its own, as severe as that of science, and more difficult because more subtle, more complex, and dependent on more and more fugitive causes, uh, end of quote there. Um, and so I like to think of fugitive causes as that, that place that a poet goes bushwhacking in his or her imagination and finding <laughs> language, um, you know, leaving, leaving theory, leaving self-consciousness, but really delving into the unconscious, um, which is what is something that Robert Bly, you know, always talked about um, um, in, in his, um, has always talked about in his essays as well as in his poetry. Um, but, but, but finding that, um, that, kind of dream language, if you will, that mythological language, it also makes sense in our actual lives. Um, you know, I was, I was reading the Song of Songs the other day. I keep looking for examples of, this, of these fugitive causes. And there's this mm. wonderful passage where the beloved, the, the queen of Sheba or the gazelle, says um, to um, Solomon, um, um, I, uh, I, my beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels removed for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. Um, it's just, it's just so, so evocative and lyrical and fugitive um, that the poet almost isn't aware of writing it, or, or really isn't aware of writing such language at the time they're writing it, and yet something wonderfully magical and um, fugitive happens. Um, the same thing happens in a James Wright poem, To the Muse, where he's talking about his beloved Jenny coming back from the dead, and the, doc the three doctors in Wheeling, West Virginia, hang her body up in their office. And really, he's um, found a way to, ex to describe the pain he's feeling more than his... Um, uh, more than his beloved who's, who's died and is at the bottom of the Powhatan pit. So it's, it's that kind of flight and power and originality that occurs, um, whether it's in the Song of Solomon or, or James Wright that is, or Coleridge, that's so wonderfully fugitive and powerful. And, and in my essay, Resistance and um, Independence, um, um, the kind of language that Ruth Stone and Louise Gluck, I also do a little... Um, interpretation of her poem uh, analysis, uh, Mock Orange, um, that is just so wonderfully wild. And I think poets wonder, well, where the heck did that come from? You know, and, and, um, <laughs> and, and how does it make sense and not make any sense almost at the same time um, with its conceits and um, um, it's just its imaginative um, flights into the unconscious? Well, that's a great answer, and thank you so much for, especially for providing the specific examples, <laughs> because that's really instructive. Well, I thought you might ask, and I should be ready uh, to answer what what fugitive. It's it's you know it's a couple hundred year old term now, um, but still very mm -hmm. relevant. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. So in the title poem from your collection, The Double Truth, you yeah. speak about the stone, you talk about the stones in your mouth that you've learned to talk yeah. around. 
And yes. I kind of related this to in your Poetry International interview, you talk about how it's important to get the unsayable between the lines in a way that it still speaks somehow. So yes. I just wanted to ask how you think as a poet, do you distinguish among the unsayable that must be present, the unsayable that need not be present, and that which must be said? Right. I, um, yeah, um, the poetry is always on on the edge of the the ineffable um poet always feels that he or she has to write the next poem because um the last poem didn't um didn't um find the right language or didn't enter the silence in quite the right way um so th- th- this is this is the the curse really of being a poet and also the blessing um, of, of not ever being able to find the the perfect poem or to translate the muse's uh, language in a way that the poet feels well. That's it. I don't have to write another another poem after after that. Um, <laughs> and and so I think though that um, so it, it, you know, the muse is merciless in this way, and the poet just need, needs really to accept the fact that um, um, that that. Um, po- poetry ha- has to learn, or the poet has to learn to live with uh, that that silence in the end, which is which is the unsayable. Um, so in this mm-hmm. short little poem, I just I simply um, write: I still taste you from the time you painted my tongue with your scarlet finger. It cured my heart of innocence. That single dose, and I've tasted it, the double truth, ever since the bittersweet in the words. I cannot speak, but stick in my mouth like stones. I've learned to talk around. So the the double truth, which is the title poem of the book, is the truth that you can speak, because we have to speak the truth as poets, but also the truth that we can't speak and acknowledge that we can't speak. Mm, and so those wonderful. those stones in the mouth are simply a, a metaphor for that inability to speak um, the the perfect truth, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Great. Such a great poem. Well, I know you have a new collection coming out, Interstate. Is that the correct title? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. In 2015. I thought maybe you had changed it since we last spoke. <laughs> it's a great title, though, so I'm glad you're keeping it. Um, so it's coming Thank out you. in 2015 from University of Pittsburgh Press. Would you like to share a couple of poems from that collection as well? Well, thank you, thank you for asking. I I will um, um, read maybe a one one or two. That that would be okay. Nothing too too, too long. Um, I could um, read the uh, uh, the title poem. Perhaps the the title is taken from a poem titled uh, the the, um, the Star of Interstate, and mm-hmm. it's really. Uh, again, it's a kind of song of songs poem. I, I tend to write, you know, poets they they can, they write what they they can, and it's it's not always what they think they want to write in the end. Um, but um, um, let me just find this poem. Um, so I, why I write some of these, I, I still I I have no idea. Um, um, so I'll read. Uh, the, the star of interstate. 
Oh, May I make just, requests uh, as well? Here it is. Yeah. What's that? You can certainly please do make, make a request? request because, you know, I prefer that. Okay, because okay, I would love to. There are a couple of poems that I would really love to hear. Okay. okay. So, great. This one is this one's just simply called The Starving Estate, and it's about some, a guy trying to, to drive home, to get home. It's a little, it's a little bit like that... Um, that movie, an owl, at, at, you know, the incident in Owl Creek, um, where mm-hmm. the, the soldier is um, trying to get home um, and can't at the end. The Star of Interstate. The clouds were curtains that parted onto the show of sky above the scar of 89. Oh, the big blue screen of human days and score that featured mainly strings. Oh, the epic something, then nothing, that opened as a matinee, but played into the night on a single reel inside the room that housed the machine. I drove with one eye open and the other closed. I couldn't tell if the things I was seeing, broken line, blinking light, leaping deer, were live or frozen frames, were on the road or in my mind, into which I'd also driven at a dangerous speed. I was bearing down in the passing lane inside the theater of my Chevrolet. I was seeing myself through the lens of a windshield in the opposite lane. I could smell the sky with the windows closed. I could hear her voice from every cloud. Come home, my love. Come home. I believed there was still a way, despite my fame, as the man who flies to return as myself someday and give her the keys. Wow, it feels like a poem to the muse. <laughs> well, I guess it kind, kind of is. It kind of is. Yeah. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. It has a sort of dangerous feeling. So. Um, yeah, I've, it read... felt dangerous writing it, actually. Yeah, but in the best way. <laughs> well, 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 good. I, you know, I, I live in Putney, Vermont, and I commute to uh, Providence, Rhode Island every week where I teach. So I, I'm back and forth two and a half hours each way. And some nights it gets pretty dark and lonely on the interstate. Gosh, I can imagine. That's quite a commute. <laughs> yeah. So, um, would you read also to the end? Oh, sure. Um, to the end. Uh, um, <clears throat> this is a poem about... Um, my father, who died about three years ago now, and I tried you know, writing a poem about visiting him here for the last time. I mean, a lot of poets, writers in general, do this. Um, I feel compelled, I think, to, to do this um, and to try and capture that last meeting with a parent. Um, and my, so I, I you know, had written a lot of kind of river sticks poems of you know, trying, you know, Love seeing him waving goodbye as he was crossing the river um, in his hospital room. He was in a uh, nursing home just before uh, he died. But I, I just didn't feel like I was capturing him or what had happened. He, he was a very, um, he was a feisty, very feisty fellow, a surgeon, terrible patient, terrible patient, even though he'd been a surgeon <laughs> all his life, and um, had, had, you know, had several strokes and had had also dementia at the end, but just such a fighter um, to the la- very last moment. So this is a, a poem trying to capture that last meeting a well, few days context, before. Do you mm-hmm. mind if I ask how long ago it was? 
No, uh, not at all. Um, it was 2011. So. Oh, um, okay. Well, actually, no, actually, it was two. That was in April of 2010. I, I was, okay. Um, the book okay. came out at, uh, in, that I wanted him to see, but so it was 2010 in April. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So condolences. It really hasn't been well, that long. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. So it's um, it's it took me what um, three years to to to, to really. To, to 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 really convince myself, I needed to write the poem in this way. Um, well, in my view, that's fast. <laughs> well, yeah, that is, I guess. Um, but here it is, to the end. So angry in the first light of day, as he lay in his hospital bed with the metal guards upraised, stuck on his heath for good, demented but aware of the time, and set on fighting to the end old marine that he was who'd never been to war but head in his head destroying his enemies one by one except this one without any form a cough some stars a twinge no more good mornings to the team of men in their uniforms of scrubs and gloves just god damn it again and again so much vim still left in him as they stripped him bare in his bed and pinned him down while begging him to please stop fighting and strapped him to a human crane and raised him up like a missing piece and rolled him into the shiny bath where they washed him clean as he hung in the air and dressed him then in, an, in olive green and brought him back into his room that was not his room where they lowered him down to his special chair in which he chuckled with a grin as if he'd won again and was ready now to greet his son who traveled such a long, long way to say goodbye. Wow, so powerful. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> you know, I, when I looked at the poem on the page, I, I don't know whether, I don't think this would convey to the readers, on, I mean, on, to the listeners from hearing it aloud, but the whole poem is only two sentences. And it's amazing to me that you can convey so much. And, and there is so much duende in this poem and such a vital shift in tone. And it's all in two sentences. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I was yeah, I was I was trying to capture the the fight, the struggle as one long ordeal. Uh, really, I really wanted it to be one sentence, but um, mm -hmm. um, found I had to to make turn uh, just for, for grammatical reasons into two. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. thanks for noticing that. Yeah, the struggle oh, poem, sure. poem was a struggle to write too. Yes. Well, I can imagine in the, the shift. To, from the beginning to the end, it, it's just it's a startling transition, and it's wonderful, really. Um, well, how well, he that, that, that smile, <laughs> the chuckle at yeah, the end. That, that was that really what that really captured his whole life. That that smile of of even though he had lost in the end here, um, he the the feeling or the really the confidence that he had that that he had despite being picked up by I don't know if you know that what the, what they have in these nursing homes these machines that actually pick up patients the miniature cranes for patients mm -hmm. who are so combative um and um mm -hmm. they um uh it's, so he really 
had had this wonderful sense of victory um mm-hmm. about every morning this went on the 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 the, the uh, orderlies would come come in with oh gosh here we have to, here we go again you know um fortunately <laughs> it didn't last last too long yeah um, but i realized i had to really well? i just felt like i really had to write this brutally honest poem well it it has that brutally honest feel about it. So I think you were entirely successful in conveying that. And just the details and um, the, I mean, it's just this feeling of him being more powerful even in death, you know, than, than Yes, exactly. exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. And big, strong presence. Yes. Would you read Chains also? Sure. Um, this is the last poem in uh, the new manuscript. We, um, we we cut down several trees here a few years ago because uh, of the windstorms that have come through here and knocked the knocked giant white pines and red pines down. And um, we had these huge brush piles that I, I burned when and would have to stay up all night watching to make sure that they didn't spread. Our neighbors were very concerned about it. Uh, um, so the, this poem grew out of watching those fires. Chains. I took the chains down to the hardware store to have them sharpened on the grinding wheel. It was the day before the day of rest, so I worked some more when I returned, gathering branches into a pile, starting a fire, tending the flames until they disappeared at dawn and I went inside to lie with her, the queen of trees, who had waited for me throughout the night, breathing her lullaby now beneath the quilt, emitting the sweet, eternal scent of the future against my stench, leading me with her beauty alone into the dark where I dreamed of the trees I felled still falling in that slow, intractable way they fall at first, then faster in their swift descent that takes forever, it seems, despite their speed, since in the time between the second the tree begins to fall and the moment it hits the ground, a man has time to write his epitaph on a stone inside his head and lay some flowers as well on the mound that rises up before him like a wave wherever he stands. Wow, so beautiful. It kind of breaks my heart a little bit <laughs> uh, for the man and the trees. <laughs> yeah, it, it, um, it, it, yeah, there was a lot of grief you know, in cutting down some of those trees, yes. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, we've, we've had a drought in Texas last summer, and uh, we, we lost so many trees. It was really heartbreaking. It uh, is. You know, when I first read the poem, I, I didn't yeah. realize the context of it. And I thought that maybe the trees were being used for, like, firewood or something like that. And it, oh, it yeah. reminded me of a couple of different things. Um, it kind of made me think of um, the, the statement that Carl Jung made about eating, about how part of growing up and losing our innocence is realizing that other things must die so we can live. So I kind yeah. of, you know, imagine the, the trees being used and then this kind of like Native American prayer of gratitude almost. I mean, the poem has a little bit of that feel about it. Well, um, good. I'm glad it, glad it does. We actually, 
uh, sent many of them away for lumber and pulp and that sort of thing. But it's still, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're no longer trees uh, anymore, obviously. And um, it's, right. Right. Uh, we live in a dense wood in in, in Vermont here, and there, there are trees all everywhere. Uh, enormous oaks, maples, red pines. Um, we just actually built a tree house 20 feet up <laughs> in uh, between three maples, and we sleep there every night now. Um, so, so, but it's it. Whenever you cut a tree down, it's a for me anyway. It's a very um, a moving ordeal. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm sure most people feel that way too. Um, I wanted to ask you also about. Um, you talk a little bit in the Poetry International interview about mm-hmm. the, the public view of American poets as exiles in their own country. And yeah. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Can you say more about that? Sure, sure. I, I, I think poets have always felt like exiles in their in their own country as, as um, write, writers who are... Um, 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 writing as sort of as as prophets in a way, uh, finding mm-hmm. new new language, finding a new originality. Um, um, you know, the, you know, the, the strange thing is is that is about poetry is that it's it's essential language. It's language mm-hmm. that we we remember. Uh, I hope we remember it if if it's uh, if it's powerful enough and original enough and truthful enough. Um, but it's often sh- shocking. It's often uh, surprisingly new. It's um, offensive even. And so so poets aren't accepted uh, very mm-hmm. easily at first. Often, I mean I mean some are who are uh, making f- false assurances or simply beating a familiar drum but but poets mm-hmm. who are telling the truth in an original way and it doesn't have to be political does, at all i mean take emily dickinson for instance no one understood her for a hundred years really i mean <laughs> a few a few people did right um but, but you know after people finally started reading her closely and understanding her uh realized that she was one of the most powerful feminist poets who ever ever lived, and she was telling a truth that no one wanted to hear for for a long, long time. Um, so, um, you know, I'm a nobody. Who are you? She says. You know, she mm-hmm. she she certainly felt like an exile. And if you read Democratic Vistas by Whitman, he you know even though he um, said you, you know these United States are the greatest poem, um, he ended up feeling very sort of exiled after the war. Um, not not uh, literally, but certainly um, poetically and, and even politically. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we see a lot of poets leaving, actually leaving the country in in the, in the tradition of or in the history of American literature. Um, Eliot and Pound and even Frost uh, going to Europe for long periods of time. So you know, it's it's just not easy being um, a citizen and a poet at the, at the same time. Um, the best uh, citizens are often poets because of the truths that they see. But again, they have to learn to live with the, the possibility and the likelihood that they're not going to be heard at first, and that they have to, uh, and that they may even die 
without um, mm-hmm. knowing, knowing whether or not their, their poetry has been read closely. And with so much poetry being written today and published, I think it's, it's more of a kind of crisis for poets than ever. You know, will, I ever, will anybody you know, spend five minutes with me? Um, you know, at, interviewing Galway Cannell and Ruth Stone and Robert Bly and Lucille Clifton and Maxine Cuman in this book that I you know, did recently, I realized that the one thing that they wanted all in their 80s and 90s was simply to be read and to be appreciated. Mm. They feared being forgotten. Um, and mm. and you know, all of them, in a way, felt like exiles for the, ki- uh, for the kind of truths that they, they wrote mm-hmm. in memorable, well, in very memorable know, ways. Yeah, and you talk also, and uh, I, I read so many different things of yours. I have a hard time keeping it straight right now, but I think it was also in Resistance and Independence and Contemporary American Poetry. You mm-hmm. talk about oversaturation, and you talk about the, um, you know, how there are more poets than readers right now. And um, I just, I have a lot of questions about that, but just to start with, I mean, is it the death knell that people say it is? Has the death knell been wrong? Um, You know, and who's to blame for poets, you know, what we perceive as poetry's ineffectiveness today? You know, well, you, you know our, our sort of high-tech society wants to sound the death knell of, of poetry. There's a, you know, something else that's taken over that's, in many people's minds, newer and more exciting, which is um, technology, um, which is... Uh, um, you know, um, which are are the, are the sciences, uh, which certainly need to, to be stressed, but, but w- without... Um, without the essential language the new essential language of uh, of poetry and and finding that language in our um in in our very sort of confused postmodern populated world um i I think we're going to be end up feeling very hungry for new definitions of who we are In, in my last paragraph in that in that essay i I, I write, how many poet teachers are emphasizing the redemptive efficacy of the poet's paradoxical task of stripping herself of knowing while simultaneously resisting, repelling the past? How many MFA mentors are encouraging their apprentices to attain the shamanistic wisdom of the gross, mystical, and nude seer or to risk placing the full, their full intellectual weight on the plank of reason to break it purposefully, as Emily Dickinson did in her poem, um, I Felt a Funeral in My Brain, then fall through worlds until they've fin- they finished knowing then. Allen Ginsberg mm-hmm. refers to Whitman as the courage teacher in his poem, A Supermarket in California, for poets to escape Poe Biz's perfumed rooms, term from Whitman, <laughs> they must trust in Ginsburg's same courage, teacher, enough to suffer anonymity and even ignominy for their daring, just as Whitman and Dickinson did, just as Ginsburg and Bly did, just as James Wright and Sylvia Plath did. Um, in this regard, they must become prophets as well as poets in identifying the illusory gift in their midst as a wooden subterfuge and then write against it in a strange new way that is also immediately familiar and redemptive. So, uh, you know, it sounds a little religious there and and nostalgic maybe in a way, but the point I I make earlier in the essay is that strong American poetry has always emerged out of resistance. You know, Whitman and Dickinson um, uh, rebelling against English prosody, the modernist Mm. uh, writing against nihilism. 
um, contemporary poets like the ones I interviewed writing against their fathers, their great modernist fathers, out of the shadow of the, uh, and trying to escape the shadow of of the of um, the great modernists. Um, but but now we seem to be in a very slack age where there isn't that resistance as much anymore. What are we resisting? Um, and um, even though a, a, a lot of wonderful stuff's being written. Um, there's a kind of zeitgeist uh, that lacks resistance. And I, I'm just, I mean, we can't, how do you create, you don't want to create resistance for the sake of just creating it. Um, but, at the <laughs> same, but there needs to be a kind of vision and courage, as, as Ginsburg called it, that finds, um, finds a voice to, that, that, is, that is enduring, memorable, and original in its resistance to what is killing the soul of the country. And there's always something there you know, in the soul of the country. In uh, one part, <laughs> I thought it was interesting you, you indicated that what uh, might need to be resisted now is actually the Pobiz itself. <laughs> it, yes. That's, well, <laughs> that was so brilliant. <laughs> yes. I think uh, Pobiz has gotten into bed with the very forces that are sapping its strength. Um, it's become a big business, you know. It's just it's become a very big business, to the point mm-hmm. where poets aren't thinking so much about writing a poem like Howl anymore, you know, what, um, um, or biting the hands that, that's feeding them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and who's going to listen to that now? <laughs> so those are all questions that I have. Well, do you see anything else? That uh, that you feel is there to be resisted. I mean, I know you must because we do um, in the culture. The outside of hope is is what I'm asking. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, what what happens to us every day. My my grandson just visited for a week. He was a brilliant kid who lives in San Francisco, uh, right in the heart of high tech industry there, and. He plays video games all of the time and is very good at it and um, has a wonderful vocabulary, but he never goes outside. He never uh, experiences the world in a way that, I I don't want to say like, you know, as I did growing up in the, you know, Blue Ridge Mountains. I I don't need to be self-referential here at all to to comment on this, I don't don't think. Um, um, But I just really worry about a generation or generations that are divorced from the world and the earth that they're, um, you know, that that they're part of and don't seem to realize. And so that was a wonderful. Just, oh, go ahead, yeah. please. No, that's it. Oh, I was just going to say there there was a wonderful essay that came out a few years ago about. Um, I think it was called a nature deficiency. <laughs> uh, yeah. Talk about how the kids nowadays have a, a, an actual deficiency of you know exposure to to nature. And I wonder. I mean, and I agree with you. And I mean, I don't know how you and you you can't suddenly teach it to someone after they've they've grown up. And I and I think that same deficiency is um. I, um I, I don't know. I just I, I write a, I write a lot about the 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 world outside my door here in Vermont, um, and I I feel that that writing a, about the natural subjects that that I do often also 
engenders um, compassion in my in my writing and um, mm. and a kind of transpersonal self that crosses over from me to the other. I I hope I hope that's what's happening. Um, and with, mm. but without that, I just I don't know where literature is is going or would go without that kind mm-hmm. of um, um, transparent or uh, transpersonal um, sensibility. Yes, yes. Um, I have a question related to what we were talking about earlier with the the lack of readership. And um, I I just wanted to ask you if if you have the opportunity right now to sort of speak to people who don't read poetry and tell them why they (laughs) should. Yeah. What's that? I mean, what what would you say? I I mean, like, yeah, if you could just say, tell them why they should read poetry. Um, yeah, you know, I go, I'll go back to a quote by Whitman. The proof of the poet is that his country absorbs him as affectionately as he absorbed it. Um, he also said that the a, a poet, um, the po- uh, that the country's poetry is only as good as the audience that reads it. Um, mm-hmm. So if we lose, a, you know, a, a, a smart, thoughtful passionate readership for poetry or literature in, in general, then we lose just a vital part of our, our national soul. We don't know who we are. We may be able to know how to make things, like the, the, mm-hmm. new, the next new iPhone. But if, if, we don't, if we don't read and if we don't understand um, or carry on the legacy of great literature and poetry and the news that stays news, then this is a frightening thing, and this can happen in, in a kind of dehumanizing culture. We, we, lose, we lose who we are. We lose um, mm. our sense of ourselves. We lose how we're connected to each other. Uh, and uh, that's, I, I don't know how else to say it. No, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, very, yeah, very, very true, John. Thank you. Um, oh. We are actually kind of running out of time here. Yeah, yeah well, thank you <laughs> yeah. for all your wonderful well, questions. Uh, well, thank you. It's been so great to talk to you. And in closing, we know about your book that's coming out, Interstate, and I'm very excited about that. Is there anything else that you would like to announce? Any other um, well, then? that's coming out in the fall, as you say, of uh, 2015. And um, I guess the only other thing I, I would mention, I'll, I'll be, do, be doing just a few readings around here in New England, but I will be at the Palm Beach Poetry Festival from January 19th to the 24th um, next year, um, which is a, a, just a wonderful fest- festival. And I, I would encourage everybody listening to think about um, applying or uh, taking a look at it at least. There's wonderful faculty there, including this year, um, uh, Brenda Shaughnessy will, will be there, uh, Linda Gregerson, Maurice Manning. Um, I'll be interviewing Dana Joya, who used to be the um, head of the NEA in the 90s and wrote, <laughs> speaking of the death of poetry, wrote this Poetry Matter, his famous book back in the early <laughs> 90s. Um, so that's a wonderful event. Tom Lux will be there as, as well. So that's the next oh, sort of okay. big thing I'll be doing. Uh, wonderful. And at your website, do you keep the list uh, of, of upcoming events that people can I, look I at? Do. I do. I need to update it probably a little more frequently, but that's just DD. It's just www.chardenor.com. Very simple. Okay, great. And I also want to mention we ran out of time, but 
you have some wonderful poems at your website too if people want to go and obviously get books of yours is a wonderful thing to do but there are also a few poems on there and i love what the animals teach us oh my gosh i was oh, hoping to ask you. you to read that too but okay. well, that's <laughs> there. Time, so. people want to yeah. read it thank you yeah just fabulous thank you so so much thank you melissa for your, okay. your questions and your hard work on this i appreciate it so much of course and thank you and have a wonderful evening thank you melissa bye before we Bye-bye. close, I'd like to thank producer and associate editor R.J. Jeffries, contributing editor and assistant producer Udo Hintz, and publisher Donna Stein for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. I'd like to also remind our listeners that at our website, you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of the Ferret Journal and find out about upcoming events. While you're at the site, be sure to also check out the Tafera Talk book. It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of Tafera Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website, where we offer a free copy monthly through our giveaway. We hope you'll join Tafera Talk again on the 28th for an interview with host Donna Bear Stein and guest Elizabeth Cox, and Michael Curtis. In the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work.